Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, with a message entitled, The Bible and Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Over these two weeks, that is last week and this week, I'm attempting to give an overview of why Back to the Bible Canada does what it does. And last week, I've tried in some form to spell out why we're called Back to the Bible. We're committed to the Bible as God's only inerrant and infallible revelation of God to man. We're bibliocentric. Now, you won't be surprised when I say that our bibliocentric approach leads us to hold up Jesus as the center point of our faith and all that we believe. Ultimately, the Christian faith is about Jesus. And in this context, let's read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, that's quite a list. Let's see if I can put together some of what we've just been told about Jesus. Number one, he's the invisible God come to us in human form. Number two. He's the firstborn, meaning he has preeminence over everything. Number three, he's the creator of all that exists. Number four, everything that was created was created for him. Number five, everything that was created continues to exist moment by moment because he wills that it should do so. Number six, he is the head of the church. Number seven, his resurrection is the first of a series of resurrections that will flow after him. Now, that's just the taking a few items off of that list, but by now, it should be readily apparent that the Bible places Jesus as not only central, but he's preeminent, foremost, over everything. Since that's what the Bible teaches, it shouldn't surprise us then to think that Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible. Now, of course, we won't surprise anyone who knows even a bit about the Bible to think that Jesus is the theme of the New Testament or the last 27 books of our Bible. But how is he the theme of the First Testament? And yet when we read Jesus, he certainly thought so. See, we start with a dialogue, or shall we say a passionate debate between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And I'm referring specifically to one that's recorded in John chapter 5. The whole thing starts when Jesus heals a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Well, that should have set everyone into rejoicing, but it didn't. The problem, at least as the religious leaders saw it, is that this miracle was done on the Sabbath, the day of rest and worship. But in a curious twist, it's not just that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but that he told the invalid, get up, take up your bed and walk. By the way, we shouldn't think of the bed as a kind of a a mattress that we sleep on. Think of it as a thin mat. And of course, the minute Jesus said that, the man's body was restored, he picked up his mat, he walked. And the religious leaders who had devised very specific rules about what was acceptable on the Sabbath and what was not, well, they immediately blew the whistle. They said, that's illegal. You're breaking the law. And then not content with that, they demanded of the startled man, who is it that ordered you to do that? And in fear of the religious authorities, the man immediately says, that man over there. And he accuses Jesus. 
as if he was saying, look, you religious leaders, I'd never have done this if that man hadn't told me to do it. And that begins the passionate confrontation. As it now begins, things are said, and John, who both witnessed the event as well as records it for us, tells us what the religious leaders said to Jesus. Here I'm reading John 5:18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Ah, so they said this must be an evil man, a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer of God. We need to sentence him to death. And I won't get into Jesus' entire response. I commend John 5 for your own study, but for our interest, would you pick up the debate at John 5, 37 to 39? And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they who bear witness about me. Now, when Jesus says the scriptures bear witness about him, he's speaking most specifically about the First Testament, or as many refer to it today as the Old Testament, the first 39 books in our Bible. Yeah, the First Testament says Jesus bears witness about me. And you religious leaders, seeming to be experts in the law, have spent your entire lives studying scriptures, and you're completely blind when the fulfillment of your Bible walks right up in front of you. What did you do? All you could think about was murdering me. What then is your real interest in the Bible after all? Now, that's not the only time Jesus would speak this way. You remember that Luke recorded an event after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Two disciples of Jesus not having heard of the resurrection yet, but quite aware of the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're going to their home in Emmaus. And along the way, Jesus walks over to them, but their eyes are prevented from recognizing him but they're discouraged and disillusioned. And furthermore, they confess that they had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But now that he's died on a Roman cross, well, they see this as evidence that he's not the Messiah after all. Now listen now to Jesus' response, and I'm reading Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets, that is, that refers to the the books that we call the first 39 books of our Bible. That is, starting with Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then going through the rest of the First Testament, he shows them how the First Testament speaks about him everywhere. Now, and this is fascinating. Many modern-day readers to the Bible think that's confusing. I mean, where in the world, in reading the First Testament, do we see Jesus all over the place? How could the Jewish religious teachers who have spent a lifetime in reading and studying the First Testament, and then, for that matter, two of Jesus' own disciples have missed the message of the First Testament? And for many of us, we might feel the same way. I mean, how is that possible? So let me do a very fast and brief overview of how to read the First Testament. At the outset, the First Testament builds a sense of expectation of a great deliverer who will deliver men and women from the fall. Genesis 3.15 is written immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. They're now in sin, and they and all their offspring will experience death. It is, quite frankly, the darkest day in human history— and the story of the human race has hardly now begun. It begins with heartbreaking loss and damnation. 
And yet Genesis 3.15 makes a promise. A seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. That's the first messianic text in the Bible. And it's hope that God's chosen deliverer would ultimately defeat the curse of sin and the deception of Satan. See, there are numerous messianic texts in the First Testament. We might think about Jacob lying on his deathbed and blessing his 12 sons. He promises Judah that the ruler's scepter will not depart from his offspring until the man arrives to whom the rulership over the whole world belongs. You know, perhaps the Jewish religious leaders should have remembered those two texts alone as Jesus was driving out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead and calming the storm with just a word. Was this not the ruler that was promised to Eve as well as to the one promised to Jacob as he lay dying on his bed? Of course, there are other messianic texts and promises of the Messiah. Indeed, even though there are so many, even so, that still doesn't make up the majority of the First Testament, and that's the point. What about the rest of the First Testament? Is that also speaking about Jesus, and how can that be so? See, not everything, or even the majority of the First Testament, are messianic. What is to be made of the rest of it? How can Jesus be the theme of the Abraham story, or of the Isaac story, of the Jacob story? the Moses story, the Joshua story, the Samuel and David story, all the kings, the prophets, and so on. You know, it seems to the casual reader, it's just not possible that Jesus is the theme of all of that. And yet, we do, if we're careful readers, see Jesus in the pages of the First Testament. I know it takes a bit of practiced care, but if we learn a few secrets, suddenly we're going to be transformed from using the Old Testament as just a series of moral stories that we apply to our lives, and then we're going to begin to see them speaking of Jesus and about his wonderful plan of redemption, and then about God's promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus, both in his cross and in his rulership and in his second coming at the end of the age. Indeed, if we're going to do Bible study right, we're going to have to find Jesus in every single part of our Bible and that must include the first 39 books. This year has been one of the more challenging years of my lifetime, and I know it has been for many of you. That's why we felt it so important that all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would continue uninterrupted. In fact, we would even add new Bible teaching video programming on YouTube. Your response has been overwhelming. Your prayers, encouragement, and support has sustained this ministry, and we can't thank you enough. As our fiscal year comes to a close, we'd ask you to continue to support. Our target is $325,000, but to help us get there, a group of ministry friends have provided a $75,000 matching gift pledge. That means every dollar you give is matched by another dollar up to $75,000. Thank you for your continued support. If you'd like more information or to send a gift towards the Match Campaign, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Not everything in the First Testament is messianic, and so if we make the claim that Jesus is the central theme of the whole Bible, which indeed is both our claim at Back to the Bible Canada and as Bible teacher, my claim as well, we're going to have to get some clues as to how that's so. 
I remember many years ago, the first time I read the great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You know, I haven't been able to find the quote again, but Spurgeon said something like this. Whatever Old Testament text you preach, he said, go to Jesus. Even it means you have to ford a river and cross a few mountains to get there. See, I remember first reading that and appreciating the sentiment, but I thought to myself, well, if I do that, I'm going to be violating the rules of Bible study. What I mean is this, I was afraid that I would break the rules of census planner, that is, paying attention to the plain sense of any given text. Of course, you can spiritualize anything and end up with Jesus, but that seemed to me like cheating and encouraging other Bible readers to adopt bad Bible study rules. And the more I thought about it, the more I wondered about those Jewish religious teachers who said, we don't see Jesus in every page of the Old Testament. Indeed, we don't see him there at all. But of course, they were wrong. And there are a number of events in the First Testament that don't make any sense at all unless you apply them to Jesus. I mean, one such occurrence is in Genesis 18. Three men approach Abraham in the heat of the day, and they announce to him that next year, he and his wife Sarah will have a son. As one reads through the text carefully, we read that it was Yahweh who appeared to Abraham. And then the principle of the three men speaking with Abraham is referred to as Yahweh. Given that the Bible is also very clear that God is spirit, and furthermore, given that the Bible says that no one has ever seen God, seems like a strange thing to think that God would appear to Abraham in human form. But if you go to John 8, 56, you're going to hear Jesus telling the Jewish religious leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, of course, the Jewish leaders were shocked that Jesus would have claimed that he'd seen Abraham. But I have no doubt he's referring to the encounter that's recorded in Genesis 18. Look, we do know that 2,000 years ago, God, the eternal son, took on flesh. He became a man. He was born of Mary. But in reading the First Testament, we can get a clear sense that there are anticipations of that event as Jesus appears in human form on a number of occasions. Think about Genesis 32 and the man who wrestled with Jacob. And then in consequence of that, Jacob says, here I'm quoting verse 30, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life was delivered. Go ahead to Joshua 5, verse 13, and find Joshua encountering a man who stands in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua wants to know who he is. Is he for them or for the enemy? And the man says, neither. I'm the commander of the armies of Yahweh. And Joshua falls down before that man, and he worships him. And we need to remember that worshiping of angels or any man is strictly forbidden in the Bible. But Joshua is permitted, even encouraged, I would say, in this act of worshiping that man. Again, I see Christ appearing in human form in the Old Testament. Go ahead to the book of Judges, chapter 13. There we encounter a man named Manoah along with his wife. They're going to become the parents of Samson. But in chapter 13, they encounter the messenger of the Lord, and suddenly they realize it's no normal angel. Indeed, in verse 22, Manoah explains, we will surely die for we've seen God. You see, he knows it wasn't an angel he saw. It was God come in human form. Go ahead to Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. According to John 12, 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Yeah, the Lord whom Isaiah saw in the temple, that was Jesus coming as a man, anticipating the time in his incarnation on earth. That's why Isaiah could say, I saw the Lord. And at the same time, the Bible can also say, no one's ever seen God. 
God did come to us in human form in the First Testament. Many saints encountered Jesus in that way. Very well. We have messianic prophecies as well as pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the First Testament. But still, that only covers a small part of the first 39 books. Are there other things? Well, yeah, there are. And it exists in what many Bible teachers call a type. We mean an example or a foreshadowing of Christ. Here's an easy example, Genesis 22. It contains the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to go sacrifice his son. God intervenes and provides a ram which Abraham sacrifices in place of his son. And that matter does bring up the nature of Christ. See, you can't read Genesis 22 as if the rest of the Bible isn't written, has been written. There's a unity that flows through the entire Bible telling but one story. And so we know that in the fullness of time, a greater father, the Lord God himself, would send his son up that very same mountain that Abraham went up. And in this case, in the case of Jesus, the son of the most high God, no ram was provided to sacrifice in his place. Indeed, Jesus is the ram in the thicket who was sacrificed so that all of us who hope in him might be freed from sin and freed from the death that comes as a result of sin. We need to read Jesus in those moments. We call it a type. It's a form of a greater thing that will follow. But still, there's more in the First Testament. Not only are there messianic prophecies and pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, there are also shadows and types of Christ, but there are also all matter of times when the First Testament characters did something that Jesus also did, only he did it much better. What am I speaking about? Well, consider the life of Joseph, despised by his brother, sold into slavery for money. And yet, were it not for Joseph, the family of Abraham would have been assimilated into the wider Canaanite culture and then eventually died of famine. Joseph was the savior of Israel, but then think of how much greater Jesus is than Joseph. You see, Jesus was also sold by his brothers, for his own people did not receive him. And one of his own disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And were it not for Jesus, not just Israel, but the entire human race would have died in their sins. Jesus saved us like Joseph. He saved us from the justice we rightly deserve. But how much greater is the salvation of Jesus than the salvation of Joseph? Here's another example. Daniel is taken into captivity as a young man. He never yielded his faith for the riches of Babylon. He continues to open his window and look to God in prayer. And were it not for Daniel, Israel would have thought that the gods of the Babylonians were greater than the God of Israel, even as Babylon was more powerful and more impressive than the city of Jerusalem. But Daniel showed the people of Israel that the God of Israel was greater than the gods of the Babylonians. As great as Daniel was, Jesus was greater. He, like Daniel, lived at a time when Israel was also ruled by a foreign nation. And just like the foreign nation of Babylon, the Romans had gods aplenty. But Rome was powerless to heal the sick and raise the dead. Jesus was greater than all the gods of Rome. And more so, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and God rescued him. But the rescue of Jesus was so much greater than the rescue of Daniel. For Daniel only witnessed God closing the mouths of the lions, but in the case of Jesus, the jaws of death overwhelmed him so that he was consumed. And yet, unlike Daniel's deliverance, Jesus conquered death itself, stepped out of the tomb, offered salvation from death, a salvation that Daniel could never do. Jesus' glory and his salvation is so much greater than Daniel could imagine. Daniel is a foreshadowing of Jesus. So many more ways of seeing Jesus in the First Testament. 
We might think of the law of Moses, which declares God's righteousness and showcased what God wanted. But the law was powerless to do what Jesus did. Jesus' death on the cross showed God's righteousness in a way that the law could never do. Everywhere we look in the First Testament, we see shadows of Jesus, either in messianic prophecies, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, or in types, or in the heroes of the faith, and how Jesus is greater and better than all the Bible heroes we're looking forward to. So much more I could have said. I could have pointed out that Adam, through his sin, is the head of a fallen and ruined humanity, and that Jesus, through his perfect righteousness, is the head of a new humanity, raised to life and given eternal life. I could have pointed out that a book on wisdom, like Proverbs, points to Jesus, who is true wisdom that has come from God. I could have pointed out how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that he now, by his own blood, invites us into the Holy of Holies, something that was never possible before he came. And I could have spent time on David's kingship and how David looks forward to a righteous king that will rule not just Israel, but over all the nations. See, that's why biblical Christians know they never have to choose between Jesus or the Bible. Indeed, we know that if we reject the Bible, we reject Jesus. Going back to the Bible is, in the end, to go back to Jesus. For all we read in the 66 books in our Bible, in well over a thousand pages, leads us to fall at the feet of our one true Savior and then rejoice in his gift of eternal life. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're bibliocentric so that we can become Christocentric. Thanks so much, John. You know, John, is there a risk that we hold the Bible in such great esteem that we think it's completely inerrant at the risk of worshiping the Bible in place of Jesus? Yeah, thank you for raising that, Ben. I, I've heard that uh, criticism so many times. I just haven't yet met the person who worships the Bible. I just let's say it quite frankly. I mean, what exactly are we worried about? Uh, that someone would put the Bible in front of it and worship it and says, you are my God? That just doesn't happen. I know of no place where that happens. So I would say to people who make that uh, accusation, please don't set up a straw man as is constantly done when that person doesn't actually exist. Those who hold the Bible in a high regard worship God. The Bible teaches us that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series a mission for ministry right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's word. So enough is enough. Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt are excited to invite you to our 2021 special virtual event called The Gathering, coming on Sunday, September 19th. Enjoy an exclusive message from Dr. John Newfeld, hosted by Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and musical guests that will enrich our time together in worship. Last September, people from right across Canada attended online in their offices, homes, on their computers, or even their phones. It was so encouraging celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching biblical truths to a new generation. 
More information is on the way, so keep an eye out at backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry email update while you're there. Or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.